1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This episode is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a read-along. I spent a good portion of this week going through the probable cause affidavit that Detective Gary LeClaire filed in 2007 in order to get a search warrant to search Robert and Christian's houses, Christian's mother's house, and to get DNA and fingerprint samples from both of them. So what this document is is LeClaire presenting enough evidence to a judge that there is probable cause that Robert and Christian committed these crimes in order to convince the judge to sign off on the warrant. You can't just get a warrant and go into somebody's house. There has to be a reason for it. So I spent, like I said, a good portion of this week going through it and cross-checking the things that LeClaire is saying in the affidavit to the reality of what he had in the case file at the time, And some of it is really interesting. Some of it is extremely interesting. There's some of it that's true. Some of it that's not true. Some of it that's twisted and a lot of things that are just left out. So what I'm going to do after we take a short break here is I'm going to read to you exactly the probable cause affidavit. And along the way, I'll interject with where I see problems. I know a read along may not sound like a very fun thing to do on your Sunday but I promise you, this is very interesting, and it covers a lot of what happened in the entire first year of the investigation, and it also gives you an idea of where LeClaire's head was at at that point. Remember, after this, they they executed the search warrants, they got the DNA, they got the fingerprints, and then released Robert and Christian, and then suspended the case. So, without any further ado, this is Season Twelve, Episode Fifty Six, Probable Cause. All right, so this probable cause affidavit is posted up on our website. Uh, I'm not going to read the beginning part of it where LeClaire says that he's the one that is submitting the probable cause affidavit. And he spends uh, a couple of pages going through what his qualifications are as a peace officer and a detective and what he's looking for. I already talked about in the intro what he was looking for. I'm going to move right on down to the statement of probable cause. And like I said, I'm just going to read it to you and I'll interject where I see issues. So here we go. On Sunday, September seventeenth, two thousand six, the Riverside County Sheriff's Department Central Homicide Unit received a call from the Hemet Sheriff Station requesting investigators respond to six eight five five zero Alpine Drive in Pinion Pines to investigate a homicide that occurred there. I and other homicide investigators arrived on scene at 0147 hours the following morning and could see numerous fire trucks and personnel from the California Department of Forestry on scene battling a structure fire. Deputy Keener was the first law enforcement deputy on scene. He provided the following information to us. On Sunday, 9 17, 06, around twenty two fifteen 15 hours, Deputy Keener responded to a call for service from the CDF regarding the structure fire and the discovery of a burned body. Deputy Keener was advised that the deceased female was located outside the burning residence. The female was located on fire in a wheelbarrow located to the rear of the residence. CDF personnel were still in the process of extinguishing the blaze upon Deputy Keener's arrival. Deputy Keener spoke with a neighbor identified as Timothy Summerlee. Summerlee was the reporting party who called the fire department. Summerlee said shortly before 2200 hours, he saw the residence located at 68550 Alpine on fire. He went to the location from his nearby residence and saw a burning body located in a wheelbarrow to the rear of the residence. Summerlee attempted to get the attention of any residents inside the burning house by yelling out to them but received no answer. CDF Captain Williams provided the following information during the briefing. Captain Williams said he was one of the first CDF personnel to arrive. The residence was fully engulfed in flames. He saw a deceased female on fire in a wheelbarrow located to the rear of the residence. Captain Williams said the body was extinguished and his personnel were still in the process of extinguishing the structure fire. Investigator Ramirez processed the crime scene after the fire was extinguished. Two additional charred human bodies were found within the residence. CDF arson investigator DeHart determined the cause of the fire was arson based on his training and experience. He determined the fire to the residence was a separate fire from the wheelbarrow. I assisted him with processing the exterior crime scene. The residences in the immediate area were situated on multi-acre lots, and the rear of the burned residence rest against the open wilderness separating the foothills from the desert cities below. The deceased female in the wheelbarrow was located approximately 25 feet from the burned structure. So, that's our first problem. She was not 25 feet away. She was 70 feet away. Back to the document. The female was located on her back with her feet hanging over the back of the wheelbarrow. The body was completely burned from the knees to the head. I noticed the female was wearing blue jeans and had one white globe tennis shoe on her right foot. The left shoe was missing and never found. I searched the wilderness area to the rear of the burned residence, specifically any evidence related to the wheelbarrow. I located the wheelbarrow's tire impression in the soil. The tire impression indicated the wheelbarrow was pushed from the wilderness north of the burned residence to its current resting location in the backyard. I could not determine if the wheelbarrow was pushed with the body inside or not. I followed the tire path and noticed two separate shoe-sole impressions in the soil along the wheelbarrow's path. These impressions were on top of the wheelbarrow trail at various intervals and at various points next to the trail indicating to me that at least two people were pushing the wheelbarrow and or walking alongside it. The shoe impressions were photographed for later comparison and identification. Becky's shoe sole was different from the impressions in question. I followed the wheelbarrow path from the point of rest, the termination point, to the area where the tire impression ended, point of origination. The area was isolated desert terrain several hundred yards north of the burned residence. I found a pro-life Catholic Ministries business card on the ground that appeared to be recently discarded due to it being unsoiled. The card contained the name Marie Widman and her business email address. I determined Vicki Friedley resided at the location with her common-law husband, John Hayward, and Vicki's 18-year-old daughter, Becky Friedley, based on interviews with neighbors and family members. On nine nineteen and nine hundred twenty autopsies were conducted on the three bodies at the Riverside County Coroner's office. Investigator Eichelt attended the autopsies and learned the following. Becky Freedley's identity was confirmed through dental records and as the victim found in the wheelbarrow. Becky's cause of death was undetermined because of the degree of fire damage to her body. The torso area of her body was badly burned, however, no soot was found in her airways indicating that she died prior to the fire. Vicki and John were identified much later in the investigation through DNA and determined to be the victims found inside the residence. Vicki's cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the head. A projectile was recovered and determined to be consistent with a 10 millimeter or forty caliber bullet. John's cause of death was two shotgun wounds to the chest. A 12-gauge shotgun wadding and pellets were recovered from his body. Vicki and John did not have soot in their airways, indicating they died prior to the fire. Their deaths were ruled as homicides. I believe at least two people were involved in this murder based on my training, experience, and the following evidence. Number one, the results of the autopsies indicate two different firearms were used, commonly indicating more than one shooter. And number two, two different shoe impressions were found along the wheelbarrow trail, and neither impression matched Becky's shoe. Many interviews were conducted during the course of this investigation, including interviews with friends, co-workers, and family of all three victims. I learned the following from the interviews. On nine eighteen and nine twenty-five, I interviewed Javier Garcia, who told me the following. Javier said he met Becky about three years ago. He and Becky were best friends but did not share a dating or sexual relationship. Javier spent a great deal of time with her. He said Becky's current boyfriend was her cousin, Jacob Santiago. And so here's another inconsistency with what we actually know. And what you're going to see here is Leclerc kind of whitewashing Javier and Jacob. And, And I'm not here to say that they are guilty or should be suspects. But what's clear in the way that he's writing this affidavit is he's trying to make sure that the judge doesn't think that they could be suspects, too, because he wants the probable cause to go towards Robert and Christian. And so right here is an example of that. He says that Jacob is Becky's current boyfriend, doesn't mention that they had just broken up a couple days prior. And of course, he's not going to mention that Jacob's phone had no service during the times of the murders. He doesn't want the judge to know that. Back to the document. Javier said that on Sunday, 9-17, around 4-30 p.m., he and Becky left Claire Ripito's residence in Rancho Mirage in separate vehicles after spending the day together. Becky told him she was driving home to her residence in Pinion Pines and Javier drove home to Cathedral City. Javier said Becky told him she was supposed to meet with a former boyfriend, identified as Robert Pape, later in the evening to go hiking at her residence. Javier said he received a call from Becky on his cell phone around 5.15, stating that she had arrived home. Javier said he last spoke with Becky at 6.40 when he called her home telephone. Becky told him she was getting dressed as Robert was supposed to be there soon. Javier said he tried calling Becky several times later in the night, but never made contact with her. He told me he was with Corey Donovan, Bo Nash, and Nick Crum in Palm Desert in Cathedral City from 7.30 p.m. throughout the remaining night. Now, that's something to remember here because Javier did say that, but also we're going to find out later that's not true. Let's go back to the document. Javier said he found out the morning following the fire that a fire had occurred at Becky's residence. Javier called Becky but could not reach her by phone. He called Robert Pape to find out where Becky was because of their hiking plans the previous night. Robert told Javier that he did not show up for the hiking trip and called Becky Sunday and canceled. Now, again, that's kind of a misstatement. I don't believe Robert told Javier that he called her and canceled. He just said that he canceled, that he never went. Back to the document. I interviewed Claire Ripito, who was Becky's close friend. She resides in Rancho Mirage. She said she was with Becky and Javier Sunday afternoon and corroborated many of Javier's statements, including his relationship with Becky and Becky leaving Claire's residence Sunday afternoon to go home. Claire said Sunday afternoon was the last time she saw her talk to Becky. Becky never mentioned anything to Claire about hiking with Robert. On September 18th, Investigator Michaels spoke with Robert Pape in the homicide office during a non-custodial interview. Robert stated his cellular phone number was redacted, and his home telephone number was redacted. He resided with his mother at redacted. Robert said he was an old boyfriend of Becky's from nine months ago and has not maintained any recent contact with her for months prior to September 16th. Robert stated he met with Becky in person on September 16th and agreed to go to her residence on the 17th to go hiking. Robert said he last saw Becky during their meeting on September 16th and had not spoken with her since. Again, that's not true at all. Robert did talk to Becky on the 17th and he did say that he talked to her on the 17th during his interview. But LeClaire here is stating that Robert in his interview said that he never talked to Becky after Saturday night. Back to the document. He stated although he did agree to go hiking, it was never his intent to go. He said Becky often invited other guys to be with her when Robert was expected to be around after their relationship ended. He felt Becky invited another guy to her residence to go hiking. He felt Becky associated with other guys in his presence in order to make him jealous. Robert gave another reason he did not want to go hiking. He said he did not want to spend too much time with Becky because she would become emotionally attached to him again and that would make his current girlfriend mad. Robert said his dating relationship with Becky ended because she cheated on him. Robert said he was with his best friend, Christian Smith, on Sunday night, the 17th, between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. Christian resided with his father, John Smith, in Cathedral City. Robert said Christian picked him up at his house, and the two planned on driving to church at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Palm Desert. Robert found out the church services already concluded, so the two drove to Christian's house instead. They never went to church. Christian's father was not home on this date. After spending time at Christian's house, the two drove to the nearby James Workman School, located at 69300 30th Avenue in Cathedral City, and paintballed behind the school until around 8.30 or 9 p.m. Christian then took Robert home. He said he and Christian never left Rancho Mirage or Cathedral City on Sunday night. Now again, that is not true. Robert was absolutely not asked in that interview if they ever left Rancho Mirage or Cathedral City. He was never asked where they drove. He was never asked where they went. He was asked the places that they went to. He said they were going to go to church. And then when they found out church was canceled, they went to Christian's house. He never said anything about not driving south towards the church before that happened. Back to the document. Robert said when he returned home, instead of going inside his residence, he went across the street to where his grandmother owned a residence. He said she owned the residence but lived elsewhere. He said the residence was not usually occupied, but his cousin was spending the weekend there. Robert visited with his cousin at the grandmother's house for the rest of the night until going to sleep. I searched the assessor's parcel information records for real property ownership on Peacock Circle and learned that Roberta Larson, a.k.a. Roberta Pape, currently owns the property located at Redacted. This location is across the street and one residence to the east of the Papes' residence. It is unknown if anyone currently resides at the location. On September 25th, Investigator Bumpensero and I interviewed Corey Donovan and Bo Nash. They both corroborated being with Javier on Sunday night after 8 p.m. Now that is a big problem, and we discussed this months and months ago. But this is the one spot where there's no interview, there's no recording, there is no transcript, there's just a report where LeClaire or Bump and Sarah, whoever wrote the report, said that both Corey Donovan and Bo Nash corroborated what Javier had said, that they were with Javier after eight PM. I checked Bo Nash and Nick Crumb's employment records at Circuit City in Palm Desert on the night of the murder. The records indicate they each left work at 8 o'clock and 8.22 p.m. Now, regarding those statements, um, they're not true. First of all, you notice he doesn't mention Nick Crum. Well, Nick Crum has said that he definitely was not with Javier that night, and it was weird, and he definitely never told anybody that he was. Corey Donovan, I think, did say that he was with Javier that day. Uh, But what Bo Nash said in his original interview was that he and Javier were supposed to have plans to go to Becky's that night, and for some reason they didn't go, and he didn't know why. I also want to point out in the phone records that Javier and Bo Nash are still calling each other up until 9.30 at night. So at 8.05, Javier calls Bo. At 8.07, Bo calls Javier. At 8.48, Bo calls Javier again. At 9.27, Javier calls Bo Nash. So Javier saying he was with Bo, from 7.30 on, we know is not true because he was still at work. And LeClaire saying that Bo confirmed that he was with Javier from 8 o'clock on when he got off work also wasn't true because they're still calling each other. And remember, I had Nick Crum on and Nick said that he wasn't with him that night. They never connected that night. They ended up going to Denny's hours later, well, well after the murders had occurred. And that's consistent with the phone records as well, because at 9.24 p.m., Nick is calling Javier At 9.47, Nick calls Javier. At 9.53, Nick calls Javier. So clearly they're not together, and that's getting up to the 10 o'clock hour. Back to the document. On September 28th, Investigator Michaels and I went to Christian's residence in Cathedral City. Previously, I tried contacting Christian by telephone to arrange an interview with him. I left several voice messages on his cell phone over the last seven days, requesting he return any calls in order to talk about Becky he never returned my calls. So we went to his last known residence. Now that also appears to be a misstatement. If you look at the transcripts of that interview and I'm posting, I had posted the transcript of the actual interview. And then I found yesterday a longer transcript that shows when Michaels and LeClaire got to the house before Christian was there, when they were talking to Christian's dad, when Christian arrived, where some of these conversations happened. Uh, and in that interview, Uh, what we hear is that a voicemail, I think they said two voicemails were left for Christian the day before and that morning. They make it seem like they were trying to get a hold of Christian all week, but when he's standing there talking to them, they just say that they had left voicemails like the night before, the day before, and that morning. Christian says that he just hadn't checked his voicemail until that morning. Uh, It was an unknown number that came in that went to voicemail, and he says he hadn't checked it. Now back to the report. Investigator Michaels and I met with Christian's father, John Smith, at his home. He said Christian resides with him and with his mother, who lived about a block away. I told John about Christian's failure to return my calls. John called Christian over his cell phone in our presence and instructed him to come home immediately. Christian arrived a few minutes later. While waiting for Christian's arrival, John told us he owned several rifles and a shotgun, but they were stored at another residence. Now, those are the guns that we talked about in the follow-up the other week. He gave him a list of the guns that he owns. He in one of those guns was a 12-gauge Defender pump shotgun. Uh, None of the guns were forty caliber or 10-millimeter pistols. And he also says they were all stored at another location, which he explains was because he had a cousin who was in legal trouble and was on trial, and he didn't want his cousin coming by his house with the guns there. So he was storing them somewhere else. So there were no guns in the house. And that becomes relevant here in a few minutes, but let's get back to the document. We spoke with Christian in the living room of his house. He said his parents were divorced and they lived in close proximity to each other. He resided with both parents, including his father and his mother. Christian said his cellular telephone number was redacted. He did not have a home number at his father's home. Christian said Robert was his best friend. He said Becky called Robert from time to time since their breakup. He said Robert was with him at his mother's residence on the 16th of September when Robert received a call from Becky saying she was in the area. Becky came to their location and visited for about 15 minutes. Becky invited them to go hiking. Robert agreed and Becky left. After she left, Robert told Christian there was no way he was going hiking with her. Christian said on September 17th, he arrived home from work around 6 p.m. He collected his paintball gear and wanted to try out a new paintball gun. He called Robert and asked him if he wanted to go with him. Robert said he wanted to go to church first, and Christian agreed to go with him. Christian picked up Robert from his Rancho Mirage home, but they found out church services had already ended. They returned to Christian's house on 30th Avenue and spent a few hours at this location. Christian's father was out of town this weekend. Becky called during the time at Christian's house. She first called Robert, and he didn't answer the phone because he didn't want to go hiking with her. She then called Christian, who did not answer either. He said these calls were around 7 p.m. Now, that, again, is not an accurate representation of what Christian said. If you go back and read the transcript of that interview, when he's talking about the time, Christian is kind of giving them a play-by-play. You know, he says just what he said, that they wanted to go paintballing, Robert wanted to go to church, He picked Robert up and then they started to head to church, realized that they had missed the mass and they turned around. Then he says they got back to his house. They started playing video games. And then Christian says, oh, oh yeah. And Becky called Robert and he ignored the call. So the way I read it was that he was saying, oh yeah, because he remembered he forgot to mention that about the drive. But Michaels or LeClaire, I don't remember which one in the interview, you can read it in the transcript. Then says, oh, so he called while you were back at the house. And then Christian kind of goes with that. But it doesn't seem to be how he initially intended it to be. And then it's repeated later in the interview. The interviewer keeps suggesting that so, but Becky called while you guys were at the house. Christian said, yeah. So it is inconsistent with what we know. What's very consistent is the sequence of calls. Both Robert and Christian say they called Sacred Heart. They found out it was canceled. They both say that Becky had tried to call them and they ignored the calls. Christian even later in the interview says that he also tried to call Becky and nobody answered the phone or he kind of gave up after two rings. All those things match up perfectly with the records. What's inconsistent here is that and, and it is not an it's not a, an incorrect statement. I just don't think it represents exactly what Christian was intending for it to mean. Uh, is where they were at when they made the calls, whether they were driving on the road or whether they were sitting at Christian's house. Also, it's been almost two weeks by this point when Christian's giving this interview. Back to the report, Christian said he and Robert went behind James Workman's school, located at 69300 30th Avenue in Cathedral City, and played paintball at around nine twenty-five. He said around ten o'clock or ten twenty, Robert said he had to go home. Christian drove him home and dropped him off. Christian spent the rest of the night at his girlfriend's house in Palm Springs. Now, again, there he leaves out the fact that they said that his cousin Marty had texted him, that they had to get chapstick, that they stopped at the AMPM to get the chapstick. All of that was in Christian's interview. It was in Robert's interview. And it's not mentioned here in this portion of the probable cause affidavit. My opinion is he doesn't want the judge to be asking questions like, well, did you verify that alibi? Back to the report. Investigator Michaels asked Christian if he and Robert spoke to each other about their alibis. Christian said they did after Robert was interviewed. Now, again, if you go back and read this part of the interview, you'll see that's not exactly what Christian said. They asked him if they had spoken after Robert's interview. And he says, yeah, like Robert had called him and said, hey, they interviewed me. I told them that I was with you, so they may be contacting you. He says that Robert said, you remember everything that happened that night, right? Right. And Christian said that he did. They prod a little further. Like, why would he want to do that? And Christian says, well, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we had all the, the, the same information. And then Michael says, so you guys were talking to get your alibis straight. And Christian pushes back against that. Like, that's not what they were doing. He was just making sure that letting him know that they may be calling and making sure they both remembered things the same way. So certainly it wasn't Christian saying he called me so we could verify our alibis together. As it's written here, that's not what Christian said. Back to the report. He said they went over their stories together to confirm they recalled the same events in case Christian was interviewed. Christian did not have an explanation why he did not return my calls prior to this interview. Again, that's also not true. He said he hadn't checked the voicemail. That's exactly what he said very clearly in the interview, and I think he said it twice. Back to the report. Christian said he received a 12-gauge shotgun as a gift two years ago but the firearm was at his father's other residence. It was not clear at what residence he referred. I want to point out here that shotgun he's talking about is the same shotgun that Christian's dad had already told them. He said that it was a defender pump shotgun, was one of the shotguns that he had, and he had already said that he had kept it at another place, another residence, and he explained to them why he did that because of his cousin who had legal trouble. So just keep that in mind that christian's dad already said they had that gun and that it wasn't located there and then what we see here is christian confirming that but that's clearly obviously not made clear here in the uh, report it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper Based on my training and experience as a homicide investigator, I know that people who commit the crime of murder often possess cellular telephones during the commission of the crime. I know that cellular telephones can be tracked via cell site information to obtain a timeline that will assist in the investigations. I obtain telephone records for Becky's cell and home telephones, Javier's cell phone, Robert's cell phone, and Christian's cell phone via search warrants after their respective interviews. I reviewed the records in order to establish a timeline and calling history. I know from my personal experience that there is no cell phone service in Pinyon Pines' community, including at Becky's residence located on Alpine Drive. I also know from personal experience that cell phone reception is lost on Highway 74 near the Bighorn area as you proceed up the mountain. Reception is later gained and lost intermittently as you proceed south on the highway towards Pinyon Pines. I reviewed Becky's phone records and noticed four calls were made from her home phone to her cell phone on Sunday the 17th between 7:11 and 7:34. I believe she was attempting to check her cell phone messages via her home phone based on her calling history. There were no other originating calls from her home phone thereafter. Becky's cell phone records indicate no calls were made to her cell phone after 7:11 p.m. until 11:02 p.m. At 11:02, the records indicate Javier called Becky's cell phone. This call only lasted for five seconds and indicates there was no conversation. I determined a time frame for the murder to be between 7:40 and 9:50 p.m. based on telephone records and the fire investigation. In summary, one, the victim's last telephone activity occurred at 7:40 p.m. Two, the 911 fire call was reported at 9:50 p.m. Three. Becky was on fire when CDF arrived at 10:12 pm and four, CDF arson investigator Charlie Dehart estimated Becky was on fire for a maximum time of about 45 minutes due to the degree of bone charring. In conclusion, it is reasonable to believe that the person or persons who set Becky on fire would have left the crime scene no sooner than around 9:25 pm. Now, that's a big one. A few people have popped in and out of the chats here and there and said that we shouldn't be listening to uh, Dr. Elaine Pope's estimation that the body was burning for 20 minutes up to a maximum of 30 minutes because we have a second opinion, uh, Charlie DeHart, who estimated up to an hour. Well, there's a reason why the state didn't use DeHart. So here, and I don't know where this comes from, at this point in time in 2007, LeClaire says that DeHart had estimated about 45 minutes of burn time on Becky's body. Later, in 2015, DeHart was interviewed again and asked to give an estimate. This is before they sought the services of Dr. Elaine Pope. In that interview, there is a grand total of about two and a half minutes from the time the investigator says, if I show you the pictures of Becky's body, could you make an assessment about how long she had been burning? From that moment until he gives his assessment is like two and a half, three minutes. So he hands him a CD he puts the CD in a computer. He loads it up, skims through pictures for 30 seconds to a minute. And he says, mm, I'd say uh, she couldn't have been burning any longer than an hour. And he says, well, what about a minimum time? Uh, what about five minutes, maybe? And he kind of hem five minutes, 15 minutes on the on the lower end. Uh, and then he says, well, probably at least 20 minutes. And so that's where people are basing that off of. That is the kind of response that. Uh, that LeClaire is using in this report to say, to to create this 45 minute window. The problem is, and, and you all know I was an arson investigator for 16 years. I also taught arson investigation at the college level. So I, and I have testified as an expert, as an arson investigator, I not only know what it's like to be an arson investigator. I know what we're trained to do. I know what the curriculum is. And I know that we're not trained to to assess burn times of bodies. That is not a thing that arson investigators do. Your you're general arson investigator, like to heart, like myself. Uh, and as I mentioned way back when we went over uh, Elaine Pope's testimony, that when I first heard she had put a time on how long the body had burned, I had said, bullshit. Because I know that that we're not, we, we don't do that. We don't have the the data, the information we need to do that or the training and experience to do that. Then I read Elaine's Elaine Pope's report. I looked at the photos. I listened to her. I read through her testimony and realized that, oh, she, this is what she does. She is a Ph.D. forensic anthropologist who does nothing but study this exact thing. And, yes, she is qualified to do it. DeHart is not. And I want to play just a short clip for you of what happened at the end of that interview, the one that people cite where he says it could have been up to an hour uh, and this is him saying after he gives that broad range of times, like somewhere between twenty minutes, maybe up to an hour. Then this. Um, now that we're talking about it, or since you had a chance to review uh, your reports and some pictures, is there anything that you want to add, or anything that you think that maybe uh, you need to clarify, or? Are we- um.
0: No, but I mean, we could go to the books, and maybe I mean, if you wanted to, we could do some testing to see how long. That it takes to burn the body down. That
1: how would that te- walk me through how that testing would take place? Is
0: that textbook testing or is that actual physical experiment? Uh, we we could do if we could get some gels or something you know similar to the body. We could we could test it physically test it. So, but then we could book test by you know going. I could go through some of my reference material later on, and we could figure out what the time frame it is it takes to get so much charring right. to the human body. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, and then I, we still have a variance though because we're not sure what the actual combustible liquid is. Right, or the quantity of used of, or quantity. Used. But if we uh, if if it, I, what you're saying
1: is that down the road, if um, the district attorney wanted to look at that, that's that's an option. But yes. we would be making some uh, assumptions based on type of it liquid amounts. and quantity of liquid.
0: Correct. So book-wise, I can look through the books and stuff and see the temperatures and the time frame it takes to charge a body down to the bone. Okay.
1: So that's why DeHart's estimation is irrelevant. It wasn't used by the state in court. It shouldn't be used by anybody because he gives an estimate and then says, I'll have to look at my books and my reference material to see if we can come up with a time to figure out how long burn times would be for bones to be charred like that. He's he's not an expert. He has no idea. He was shooting from the hip and then said he can go look in a book and see if a book can tell him how long it might have been with all these variables. It is not a relevant time frame at all. He's not trained to do that. Uh, he clearly said he wasn't trained to do that. He clearly said that he had to look in a book to even figure out if what he just said was relevant. He was guessing. That's all he was doing. That being said, let's go back to the report. I believe telephone records between 9 p.m. and 9:45 p.m. on the 17th were most significant due to the time frame of the murder. I reviewed Javier's phone records, and they corroborate his statements. The cell site locations indicate his phone activity was in Palm Desert and Cathedral City during the time frame of this murder. I reviewed Robert and Christian's cell phone records, and the records contradict their statements. Robert's cell number has shown up on Becky's records 24 times since the 14th. This contradicted his statement of having no recent contact with her prior to the 16th. Robert led us to believe his recent contact was minimal. However, 24 calls within three days is not minimal in my opinion. Robert's cell phone records indicate Becky called him at 7.13 p.m. on the 17th. The call was captured on Verizon Wireless Cell Tower number 745, located at 47535 Highway 74, Palm Desert, which is located on the southern edge of Palm Desert. This location would be the last cell site tower used before traveling up Highway 74 from Monterey Avenue in Palm Desert. Now, first of all, what we know now, because we have the sector data, is that Tower 745 was absolutely not the last tower that Robert was connected to. The final cell phase, the final tower he was connected to on that 7.13 p.m. call was Tower 705, Sector 1, not Tower 745. That is not the last sector he was connected to. But here, this gets very interesting. Robert indicated he was in Cathedral City at the time he received the 7.13 call from Becky. Well, that's not true. He never said where he was at when he got that call. However, Robert's phone records indicate he made calls around 7 o'clock and those calls were captured on Verizon Wireless Tower sites located in Cathedral City and Central Palm Desert. The 7 o'clock hour cell site location calls were consistent with Robert's location as being in Cathedral City or Rancho Mirage. In conclusion, when the cell site locations were compared to the time of these particular calls, it is reasonable to believe that the caller was traveling from Cathedral City to Palm Desert. Now, this next part is the part that I said is very interesting. I'll read it to you right out of the report. Investigator Willis spoke with Verizon Wireless Specialist Joseph Murphy about cell site number 745 and the 7.13 p.m. call. Murphy researched the cell site and said the call registered at Tower 745 would indicate the caller was south of the tower location and it would be highly unlikely the caller would have been anywhere north of the tower. Okay, so here's the issue here. Detective LeClaire testified at trial that he never saw the sector data. He didn't know of anyone pulling the sector data, that he didn't know any of that. Now, we already knew that that was incorrect because on the report where Willis pulled the sector data, it says that he gave a copy of it to LeClaire. So we already knew that. But then the question was, but did LeClaire ever actually talk to him about it? Did he see it? Did he know anything about it? And I also told you that I was sure that not only did they receive it, but they looked at it and analyzed that data in August of 2007 when they received it because of all the handwritten notes on it. What we see here, and I'll read it again, Investigator Wills spoke with Verizon Wireless Specialist Joseph Murphy about cell site number 745 says Murphy researched the cell site and said the call registering at 745 would indicate the caller was south of the tower, and it would be unlikely for the caller to have been anywhere north of the tower. Okay, now this is why this is important. Investigator Wills didn't pull that sector data, didn't have any connection at all to the case, the investigation, or the cell site information, until he pulled that sector data on August 27th, 2007 which was about a month before this probable cause affidavit goes in. Leclerc is writing into his report the information that Wills got about the sector data, the communications he had with the Verizon technician about the sector data, and he says that because of the call at 745, it would indicate the caller was south of the tower location. That is confirmation that they were looking at the sector data because Tower 745 covers areas north and south of the tower, but what had kind of made that call confusing to everybody to begin with is that it says that Robert was connected to 745 Sector 2, which is the one that faces south of the tower. There's no way they could come up with a conclusion that the most likely place for them to be with that connection would be south of the tower unless they were looking at the sector data. And again, that also means Leclerc knew. Willis knew that the final cell phase was way back north on Tower 705, Sector 1, which points east southeast from that tower that's a couple miles north of Tower 745. So that's left out, but I'm not here to get into a debate about sector data. My point is that Leclerc absolutely perjured himself on the stand. And I already felt that was the case when he was saying that he just doesn't recall anybody doing that, that he didn't. Order anybody. Nobody got those records on his behalf. He'd never seen them. He didn't know anything about them. So, what's happening here? He's writing in this probable cause affidavit about the sector data that was pulled by Willis and about the analysis of that sector data in the probable cause affidavit and then got to trial and said he had never seen it, never heard of it, didn't know of anybody pulling it. It was an absolute lie. And there is no way getting around that when you read this probable cause affidavit. And, and also, just for what it's worth, he says that Will spoke with Verizon wireless specialist Joseph Murphy, uh, and Joseph Murphy is, is a Verizon specialist, but he's not a tower engineer. His title is court order compliance analyst. So again, not a tower engineer. He is in the court order compliance sector of Verizon the one that they talk to about how to read the cell site information <music> We're back into the report now. Robert's cell phone records indicate that he had no cell site activity from 7.27 p.m. until 10.23 p.m. on the 17th. The records indicate he received four incoming calls during this time period, but all went to voicemail. I know, based on my training, that the lack of cell site activity would indicate Robert's phone was turned off or located in an area where no cell site reception was available. Christian's cell phone records indicate he had no cell site activity between 7.34 p.m. and 9.55 p.m., which led me to the same conclusion as Robert. I attempted to interview Robert again after learning of the above-mentioned telephone records. Robert did not want to cooperate with any more interviews and refused to take a polygraph test to show his truthfulness. He hired an attorney to represent him in this matter. I received a letter from the attorney requesting to cease any contact with Robert. So here you see he's including in the probable cause the fact that Robert invoked his constitutional rights and hired an attorney who, of course, told him, don't take a polygraph and don't do any more interviews. Now back to the report, and here's some bone-crushing evidence. Robert's demeanor and emotional state during the interview was calm and unmoved. It is my experience that innocent persons tend to be more emotional, have a willingness to help authorities, and provide unsolicited information under these same circumstances. Robert was not forthcoming with information and appeared resentful that he was being interviewed. Now, let me remind you how Robert was interviewed. Robert went to the police station and asked to be interviewed. He volunteered that information. No one came and got him. No one called him. The fact that he is characterizing this as Robert being resentful that he was being interviewed is complete bullshit. He was there on his own volition. He volunteered to be there, he went there, and he did the interview. None of that is true. Back to the report. On January 9th, 2007, I interviewed Christian Smith for the second time. I contacted him at his mother's residence. I spoke with him on the porch of his home to determine if he and Robert were any closer to Palm Desert than they initially explained. Christian said the closest they got to Palm Desert after 7 o'clock was when Robert called the Sacred Heart Church to find out the service time. He said they were driving near Highway 111 and Country Club and Rancho to Mirage towards Palm Desert. I located this particular call on Robert's cell phone record. The call to Sacred Heart was at 7.01 p.m. and was captured on Verizon Wireless Cell Tower 707, located in Cathedral City. He said after the call, they turned around and drove back to Cathedral City in a northern direction. This particular call was consistent with the cell site location. Christian said he and Robert were together from 7 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. and never traveled into Southern Palm Desert or anywhere south of Highway 111 near Monterey. And again, that is not true. You can go back and listen to that interview. We played it. The transcripts are up. Christian is very clear. And I played a little clip of it uh, during the follow-up not too long ago. Christian was extremely clear that he doesn't know where they turned around. He says, I don't know. We were driving. He made the call. We realized we couldn't go to church. We talked about what are we going to do. He even says that in his first interview. After they found out there was no church, he said, we tried to figure out what are we going to do now, and then decided to go back to his house. When he got pressed on where did you turn around, he says, I don't know. Maybe, probably, around maybe, could have been Lord Fletcher's, maybe, and yet what we have here is LeClaire saying that Christian said that he absolutely never went anywhere south into Palm Desert, which is absolutely not true. Back to the report. Robert and Christian's alibi statements place them playing paintball behind James Workman School in Cathedral City during the time frame of this murder. Their cell phone records caused doubt to the accuracy of their alibis. I asked Christian if he and Robert had their cell phones with them while they played paintball. Christian said he had his telephone but did not recall making any calls. He said he recalled Robert turned his phone off, but had no explanation on why he did so. Okay, again, that's not true. Christian did not say Robert turned his phone off. Christian said, Robert might have turned his phone off. I don't know. And he gets pressed on it. Why did he turn his phone off? And he said, I'm not saying he did. I'm saying maybe he did. I don't know. And it was extremely clear. And again, he completely mischaracterizes it here. Uh, Not that it really matters, but it's just the fact that it's not true. He did not say that he remembered Robert turning his phone off. Back to the report. Christian refused to submit to a polygraph test to determine his truthfulness. Again, there's your probable cause. Not submitting to a polygraph test equals probable cause that you're guilty. Back to the report. I spoke with Christian's father, John, afterwards. He told me he knew Robert well and was uncertain if he and his son were involved in the murder. He said he was concerned with Robert because of his attitude and fascination with joining the army and going to Iraq to join the war. He said his son wanted to follow Robert into the military. And again, that is a complete mischaracterization of what John said. He said that he wants to go in the army and that he had asked him, what do you want to go to Iraq for? It's not the way it's characterized here. Back to the report. I spoke with Marie Widman on the telephone about the pro-life Catholic ministry's business card found at the crime scene. She told me she was the director of Pro-Life Ministries, and her organization educates and trains volunteer groups associated with other Catholic parishes about respect for human life and assist women involved in crisis pregnancies. She said her business card is passed to groups and churches she visits. She said she has visited about 15 Catholic churches in the Palm Springs, Palm Desert area several times a year. She said Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Palm Desert was one of the churches she visited and could have been the source of her business card. This is the same Sacred Heart Church attended by Robert based on his own admission and telephone records. The shoe patterns found at the crime scene have been identified as Vans tennis shoes containing a herringbone pattern and a DVS tennis shoe containing a cross-tread pattern by the FBI laboratory. The target shoes can be scientifically compared with the photogrammic evidence impressions if the target shoes were recovered. I attached images of the impressions as attachment C. If you didn't catch that, what he's saying is... We have something to compare shoe patterns to. That's one of the reasons we want the warrant to get their shoes so that we can compare them. Back to the report. I believe Robert Pape and Christian Smith may be involved in this murder based on the facts contained in this affidavit. In addition, the following behavior is very unusual and not consistent with innocent behavior patterns. Number 1. Robert and Christian's telephone records do not support their alibi statements. Number two, Robert has refused to cooperate with additional questioning in order to clarify important facts. Number three, Christian failed to return any of my calls in order to obtain his initial statement. And number four, Robert and Christian found it necessary to talk with each other about their alibi statements, but Christian avoided returning any of my calls about the investigation. Further, one, one. Robert stated he was a former boyfriend of Becky who shared an intimate relationship with each other until he terminated the relationship nine months ago because she slept with another guy. Two, Robert maintained a current friendship with her and corresponded for a period of time ending the day before her murder. Now again, you start to see why certain things are left out here. It's very clear, the phone records show, Robert's statement show, Christian's statement show, that Robert talked to Becky on the night of the murders. Leclaire leaves that out of this affidavit. So the way he paints this picture is on Saturday the 16th, Robert made plans to go hiking with Becky and then he never talked to her again. He has not mentioned once that he did speak with her on Sunday. He mentioned the 713 call, but not that they spoke. It was the 6:14 call when they talked for two and a half minutes. That's left out of the report. Back to the document. Number three. He provided conflicting statements about why he failed to show up at a residence the night of the murder. And again, that's not true. It was always the same. He didn't want to go. He said he told her that he would, but he never really intended to, and he didn't want to go. For a number of reasons, that he thought there was another guy there, that he didn't want her to get emotionally connected to him again because his girlfriend would be mad. These were all Those weren't conflicting reasons. They all were the same reason. Number four. Robert was involved in another relationship with his current girlfriend who was not aware of his current correspondence with Becky. Robert attends Sacred Heart Church, which could not be excluded as the source of the business card. Robert and Christian are 19 and 18 years old, and their age group is within the shoe company's sales marketing for the DVS and Vans type skater shoes. And then here is a big misstatement. Christian admitted to owning a 12-gauge shotgun and for an unknown reason stored it in an alternative location other than his residence. Okay, that is complete bullshit. Remember he mentioned the gun earlier. If you go back and you look at that initial interview, the full transcript, his dad first mentions this Defender Pump 12-gauge shotgun before Christian even got there. And he's listing off all the guns that he owns. He talks about that one, and he says that he kept it at a different residence Because he had a cousin who had legal trouble and he didn't want him coming to his house and having access to the gun. So John explained that the gun exists, that they own it, that it was kept at a different residence, and the reason why it was kept in another residence. Now, he says here Christian, quote, admitted to owning a 12-gauge shotgun. That's not correct at all. After that interview, when Christian says, when they ask, can we go over to your mom's house and look in your room? And Christian says, yeah. And he walks them over to his mom's house to let them go search his room. They're asking him questions about guns and they ask if Robert has any guns and he says, no. And he just volunteers. No, I know. I know he doesn't because a couple years ago for Christmas, I got this 12 gauge defender pump shotgun and Robert was, he gets kind of cut off. So he's not able to finish his thought. But it sounds like he's saying like Robert was really intrigued or impressed when he got that gun. But the point is, Christian didn't admit to it. He wasn't even asked if he owned a gun. He just volunteered the information that he owned the gun. And that's the gun that had already been discussed, not only that it exists, not only that it was stored at another location, but also why it was stored in the other location. So take all that. And this is what Leclerc spins it into. Christian admitted to owning a 12-gauge shotgun and, for an unknown reason, stored it at an alternative location other than his residence. It should also be pointed out that Christian didn't say where it was stored. It was, again, his father who said where it was stored. And we're almost done. We're running way longer than I meant to. Back to the document. In theory, if Robert and Christian killed Becky during their hike, it would be logical for them to kill Vicky and John because they would have known the boys were with Becky. It is also logical to transport Becky back to the residence from the wilderness in the wheelbarrow because a dead body is heavy to carry. Now, I would argue that it is not logical to take her from a concealed location, go out and get her, and then roll her all the way back to the house for everyone to see. Um, But that's neither here nor there. Back to the document. Arson is commonly used after committing a murder in order to cover up and destroy any evidence of the original crime. And with that, I'm going to cut off things right there. The full document is up. There is more to this document. it's already but it's taken me almost an hour to read through the part that I've gotten through. And the rest of it is talking about uh, to the judge how they know where to find the boys. you know so they had they had a surveillance team that was surveilling to see which house Robert was staying in, which house Christian was staying in, uh, where they might expect to find things, where the cars are parked, stuff like that. Uh, so there, there's not anything else really in the the probable cause uh, area left in the document. But again, the full documents up there, but those are the parts I wanted to break down for you. Just, just so you can see one, uh, even if, if you think they're guilty or you think they're innocent for you to see, this is what LeClaire number one thought. That's where his head was, why he wanted to look at them as suspects. Uh, and then also the hoops, he jumped through to get the warrant and, and you might say it's not a lot or you might be completely disgusted by what he did. But to me, I'm in the more disgusted camp. The fact that, listen, if you have actual evidence that does create actual probable cause, then list it. List it truthfully and honestly what the case is. What we have is Javier being whitewashed as far as his alibi. You know, he says that it's very clear that, that Nick and Bo and Corey all confirmed he was with them at 7 o'clock. Uh, when the fact is that's not true. And he knew from the phone records that he wasn't with at least Nick crumb or Bo Naster at that time. And he also knows that Bo said that there was a plan to go to Becky's that night. And he doesn't know why they didn't go. And again, I don't think Javi had anything to do with this. Uh, but that was clearly washed out of there. And more importantly, Jacob Santiago was completely whitewashed out of the report. He's mentioned once. And he has said that he is Becky's current boyfriend and that's it doesn't mention anything about his cell phone records not lining up, the fact that they just broken up, none of that is in there. And But the, to me, the biggest find out of this whole thing is the fact that we have confirmation that Leclerc absolutely did know about the sector data. He had discussed it at the very least with Willis, who had discussed it with a Verizon representative to break down what it meant at that point point. Uh, and, and then not only put some misleading information about what that meant into the report – But the bigger picture here is that when LeClaire testified on the stand that he didn't pull the sector data, nobody pulled it on his behalf, he's not aware of it existing. He absolutely did know it existed besides the fact that we know that the report was copied to him. Here we see in that probable cause affidavit that he was very aware of it and as suspected, that I believe was the thing that triggered this search warrant. That was in end of, end of August in 2007 is when they got the sector data. Uh, they took a look at it. They talked to not a tower engineer, but a court order compliance analyst at Verizon to figure out how to read it. And that was put in bold letters into the probable cause affidavit. So the big question, what triggered them doing the search? I think that is the thing that triggered them doing the search. Uh, and then keep in mind that after the search, the, there was no charges filed. They were released, and the case was suspended for the time being. And with that, I've got a lot more to say about it. I know you guys will have a lot more to say about it. Again, it's up on the website. I hope you enjoyed our read-along, and we'll talk about it more in this week's Friday (laughs) Follow-Up. justice is an nbi studios production and is distributed by wondering edited by kelly Barron's brink and sound engineered by shane yoder all music for the show was created composed and scored by put them in a who also mixed and mastered this episode all of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by tate krupa of red swan graphic design and you can find more of tate's work on etsy thank you to katie ross of Createdintandem.com for designing creating managing and maintaining our website to financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at Truth and Justice Pod, and I can be found personally on all forms of social media at Bob Ruff Truth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.